Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Kelvin Eng from Yale University. Waves Across the South, A New History of Revolution and Empire, published by William Collins in 2020, is a groundbreaking new history of the making of our world, starting from the ocean and from the, forgot- from the forgotten histories of ocean-facing communities. Bringing together his work in far-flung archives across the world and the best new academic research in this remarkably creative book, Sujit Shivasunaram traces the origins of modern times from the perspective of indigenous and non-European people in the Indian and Pacific Oceans, from Aboriginal Australians to Parsis and from Mauritanians to Malays, people asserted their place and their future as the British Empire drove unexpected change. The tragedy of colonialism was that it reversed the immense possibilities for liberty, humanity, and equality in the age of revolutions. Waves across the South also foregrounds the environment. The waves of the Bay of Bengal or the Tasman Sea were the context for the story. Shiva Sunaram tells how revolution, empire, and counter-revolution crashed in the global South. Naval war, imperial rivalry, and oceanic trade had their parts to play, but so did hope, false promise, rebellion, knowledge, and the pursuit of being modern. Over the course of our conversation, we will talk not just about Professor Sujit Shivasunaram's approach to writing history, but also the histories of empire, the environment, and what W.E.B. Du Bois has termed the global color line. To learn about these issues and more, join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Sujit Shivasunaram, the author of the pioneering book, Waves Across the South, A New History of Revolution and Empire. By discussing this book, we will dive deep to learn about the overlaps, interactions, and imbrications between different revolutionary moments in an age of competing imperialisms and anti-imperialisms. Sujit Shivasunaram is Professor of World History at the University of Cambridge. He is also Director of the Center of South Asian Studies at the University of Cambridge, and until recently, he was editor of the Historical Journal. His first book, Islanded, Britain, Sri Lanka, and the Balance of an Indian Ocean Colony, reconsiders the arrival of British rule in South Asia as a dynamic and unfinished process of territorialization and state building, revealing that the British colonial project was framed by Sri Lanka's tradition and maritime placement built in part of the model they provided. His new book, Waves Across the South, turns the history of the British Empire and the Age of Revolutions upside down by shifting focus to the Indian and Pacific Oceans. He has held the Secular Kate Fellowship of the National Maritime Museum, Greenwich, and visiting fellowships in Sydney, Paris, and Singapore. Welcome, Sujit, to the New Books Network in the Indian Ocean World, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your enjoyable enjoyable book today. Uh, thank you so much, so, Can you start us off? Can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself, that is, where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you became interested in your field of study, 
as well as any influential mentors you had. Yes, I was just saying thank you so much, uh, Kelvin, for the invitation and also for that very generous uh, introduction to the book um, as well. So I guess the first thing to say about myself is that I grew up in Colombo on the coast of Sri Lanka, facing the Indian Ocean, very close to the sea, in fact. And um, I grew up um, and my teenage years were in the 1980s and 1990s. And in addition to being close to the sea, I should say that it was also the middle of Sri Lanka's civil war. And I distinctly remember, in fact, the violence in Colombo in 1983. Uh, normally, um, that date of 1983 is taken up as a start of the civil war. So at, at a young age, I was interested in writing and I used to write a lot. Local universities were shut um, for periods uh, in that decade uh, and in the 1990s. Uh, and so I applied to study overseas um, and I was encouraged to do something useful uh, with my life. Um, Sri Lankans are encouraged to go overseas to do useful degrees. Uh, what's meant by this is um, usually engineering, uh, law or medicine. Uh, and so that's what I initially did. I came to the UK to study engineering, uh, but I quickly switched disciplines. I think the writing won out um, and I switched to chemistry, um, history and philosophy of science. And I finally, by the time of my graduate years, uh, postgraduate period, uh, I became a, a world historian. Uh, so that's uh, the story of, uh, that's my biography because you asked me about that. Um, I think you also asked me about influential mentors. And I think the difficulty is that uh, there are lots of mentors when one has this um, slightly unusual path into uh, world history. But let me just name two historians. Firstly, I think James Secord, who's a historian of science, who in fact supervised my doctoral work, which was on the Pacific Ocean in the late 18th uh, and early 19th century. He um, effectively taught me to write um, or um, improve my writing immensely by very detailed commentary uh, on my writing. Um, and he is retiring this year, in fact. Um, and it's worth noting that he was just a really open-minded intellectual, open to new ideas uh, and new ways of thinking. Uh, and he was also really, really intellectually generous. Um, and I think both those qualities um, which characterized his supervision of my doctorate. Um, I tried to imitate now uh, in my own work. Uh, and I guess I also got from him an interest in nature. He's a historian of geology and natural history. Uh, so the themes uh, that have been salient ones in my own work on nature, environment, and culture arguably come from him. And then there was Chris Bailey, who, um, of course, is a well-known world historian, and I had the benefit of lots of conversations with him uh, in the 2000s. Um, and I think the methodology that I adopt, well, I hope the methodology that I adopt is in keeping uh, with one that he would advocate for, which is, I guess, a commitment to very particular places, uh, the histories of very particular places, and then working up from those places into theories of broader accounts of world historical processes. So not looking down from above, like you're suited up in the sky and you're a world historian or an Indian Ocean historian, 
um, but rather kind of working from the ground up. Um, and that's been really important for me. But those are two men. And so I just want to say that uh, another very influential figure was my grandmother, uh, Mami Krishna, who was an early woman journalist uh, in Sri Lanka and who was an important person who brought me up. So there are many, many more others, but let me just stick uh, with James C. Cord, Chris Bailey, and Manu Krishna. Thank you so much for that. So as a historian of Sri Lanka and of South Asia, your first book, Island It, was on Sri Lanka specifically. Can you tell us more about how you became interested in the Indian Ocean world? And as a historian of the Indian Ocean, what can South Asian history and global history gain from Indian Ocean studies? Yeah, so as I just said, I grew up in Sri Lanka, and Sri Lanka is at the center of the Indian Ocean world. And it, in historical time, it often was a pivot for people and things and processes which were going from west to east or east to west across the Indian Ocean. So we have Chinese explorers saying her coming six times to Sri Lanka between 1405 and 1433. We have three separate European empires establishing bases and finally taking over the island, the Portuguese, the Dutch, and the British. We have Buddhist monks and pilgrims moving across uh, the Indian Ocean. Um, I guess we have traders and merchants of all kinds arriving in Sri Lanka as well. So given that kind of interchange uh, in historical time, when I became a historian, I guess it was inevitable that I was going to turn to the Indian Ocean uh, at some point. I delayed it for a while by working on the Pacific, I should admit. But um, the Indian Ocean really is so vital to what it means to be a historian of Sri Lanka that it seemed natural uh, that I should turn uh, to the Indian Ocean. So I think you were saying, um, what can South Asian history and global history gain um, from Indian Ocean studies? Um, so as you said earlier, I direct Central South Asian Studies, so I really do not want to say that one replaces the other. It's not as if Indian Ocean and global replaces South Asian. Um, but I think the benefit of Indian Ocean Studies is that it provides a vital route into critiquing the terms of these other fields when those terms are narrow and unhelpful meaning when they become national, civilizational, or universal. So quite easily, South Asia can become a national story of India, um, or it can be a story of the rise of a civilization, or it can be, a global can be quite so easily, so easily um, fold into the universal. So I think what Indian Ocean Studies does for me, and looking out from Sri Lanka, this is quite evident to me, small island, um, which can be in the shadow of the neighboring giants, um, is that it actually kind of critiques um, those national, civilizational, and universal modes. And I think it also sort of brings in the environment. I mean, for me, the Indian Ocean and Indian Ocean Studies is environmental. Um, and so I think that kind of environmental lens, once again, takes us to forgotten histories and marginalized sites at the rim of this ocean, um, and also forgotten politics, I should say, um, too. Um, so yes, that's why I think Indian Ocean Studies has a vital role to play. 
So tell us how you came to write Waves Across the South. How did the idea develop? What the research process was like? What archives did you turn to? And how was your writing experience? Yeah, so um, everyone wants to know what it's like to write a book. Um, and it's hard to explain because it's such a long process. So I had written on the Pacific Ocean during my PhD. And as you said earlier, my first book was on Sri Lanka. Um, and both my PhD on the Pacific and my book on Sri Lanka were on the same period, the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And so what I wanted to do with Waves, uh, with, with the book that became Waves Across the South, is to was to bridge the Pacific and Indian Oceans. So I thought that actually it'd be really, really interesting to bring the anthropologically inflected historiography of the Pacific to speak to the historiography of the Indian Ocean with its concerns with commerce, trading world, migration, and and so on. So it was an attempt really to sort of bridge the, the two. And I also wanted at the same time to really think about that period that I had worked on um, across those two books, which is the late 18th and early 19th century. And so this category of the age of revolutions became the one that actually uh, became a significant one for the book. And I wanted to critique it because I was aware that it was an Atlantic category in world history. So putting the two oceans together and thinking about a broader account of world history in that period and thinking that this is a category that dominates the age of revolutions. Let me critique it. Let me localize it. Let me turn it around uh, by thinking about these oceans, which haven't been considered um, very much or in a sustained way around this theme uh, of the age of revolutions. So you asked me what it was like to write the book. Um, it was very organic, actually. I didn't have a grand plan. And if I did have a grand plan, I think it sort of was changed uh, as I went along because I traveled to places and I researched. So I based myself in Sydney, as you said earlier, on a visiting fellowship and in Singapore and in Paris as well. And so when I was in Sydney, I traveled uh, to New Zealand, to Tasmania. I later traveled to Tonga. Uh, I traveled to Burma, Myanmar from Singapore um, and India. Uh, of course, I've been to before uh, and so on. So I guess the book actually was written, quite a lot of it was drafted in situ whilst I was traveling and when I was on research leave. Um, that's not to say that that was the final form of the book, but it was actually a response to the archives, to the wonderful conversations I had with so many people in these places who are historians and scholars, and um, to the place itself, the places themselves, uh, really. Um, and so that's what drove the writing of the book. Um, in terms of the later period, of course, that was much tougher because there was a lot of editing involved in bringing what was this organic book, which was multi-sided and out of writing and research in different places into a narrative uh, about the age of revolutions. Um, so that um, really took much, much longer. And what I had to do at that point was to keep in mind both the public audience for which it was intended, as well as uh, the specialists uh, and the specialist works, which I was engaging with historiographically. Hmm. Thank you so much for that. So now let's turn to the book and its chapters. 
The book addresses a broad range of archival material and thematic concerns, spanning from the South Pacific to the Persian Gulf, from Hobart to Calcutta to Aden. Can you share with us how you organized the book chronologically and thematically, or perhaps geographically? Who were the intended primary interlocutors for your work, and what historiographical intervention were you looking to make? Thanks, Calvin. So, um, as I've probably hinted already, the book is organized according to these various oceanic zones, not necessarily the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, but rather what I used to call, and I think it's still in the book, the smaller seas, um, namely the Tasman Sea, for instance, the South Pacific, the Persian Gulf, the Bay of Bengal, um, the Southwest Indian Ocean, and so on. So it's actually, it foregrounds these smaller tracts of water in the late 18th and early 19th century. And as it does that, it actually moves from the 1780s um, and the shadow of the long 18th century, if you will, which of course features at various points through uh, up to uh, 1848-49, because the last chapter is about that moment, uh, the springtime of nations in Europe reconsidered from the Indian Ocean. So it moves from the 1790s up until 1850. Now, as a historiographical intervention, as I've already said, it's a public book, but it's also a totally scholarly book. And I wanted to make sure, well, it's an experiment in doing both those things at the same time. I wanted to see whether I could do it because I take it to be important, especially at the minute with Black Lives Matter and other debates about the legacy of empire to engage with the public audience with the story um, about um, the maneuver of the British Empire, if you will, or the reactive maneuver of the British Empire uh, in the age of revolutions. But so I basically was writing it for scholars and the public uh, at the same time. And I got advice from people who read it um, who were specialists uh, in the field. So as a historiographical intervention, I guess, and this goes back to the organization um, of the book, I um, tried to think about separate sets of uh, historiographies as I went along as well. So the age of revolutions here in relation to Anglo-French rivalry and engagement and Anglo-Dutch rivalry and engagement feature in specific chapters. But there's also the Eurasian story of empire, uh, the Ottomans and the Safavids and the Mughals and so on, which features here. And then there's a literature on indigenous culture, Aboriginal culture, Pacific Islander culture and uh, politics, uh, which features as a context. And then there are chapters on race and gender, or there is a chapter on race and gender, specifically on environment and science, on public debate and modern urban life. So I thought about the structure not only in relation to these small seas and the periodization of the age of revolutions, but also in relation to these themes, if you will, and um, cross sections of the story of the age of revolutions and the rise of the British Empire. Thank you so much for that. So you mentioned the age of revolutions. What was the age of revolutions? How has it been conventionally theorized in the literature on the American, French, and perhaps Haitian revolutions? And how might we reconceptualize the age of revolutions from the perspective of the oceanic South? 
That's a huge question, because the literature on the age of revolutions is enormous, but just in basic terms, the age of revolutions literature is mostly Atlantic, and it links the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, followed by Latin American independence movement. So that's just a sort of five-second explanation of what the age of revolutions is. I mean, people have theorized it. It's one of the most long-standing labels of periodization in historiography. So one can think, say, of R.R. Palmer, one can think of Eric, Eric Hobsbawm. But for people like Palmer and Hobsbawm, this was an Atlantic movement. Uh, Hobsbawm, I think, uses the term regional volcano in the Atlantic. Palmer says that revolutions elsewhere were derived from um, this revolution of Western civilization, which is Atlantic. So that's the framework. That's the sort of dominant framework. We might have moved away from that language of derivation. We might have moved away from the language of the North Atlantic being regional. And there might be more, there are more South Atlantic stories now, but regardless, or Caribbean stories, um, regardless, it's still an Atlantic um, account and a pan-European account uh, that dominates uh, the age of revolutions. And it's told in relation to cultural practice or ideological change or state-making and governance and warfare uh, and so on across the Atlantic. So there are different ways of telling it in the Atlantic and different regions in the Atlantic uh, which might dominate. But it's barely ever taken uh, to other places. I mean, one exception I should mention is a, a recent volume edited by Mike McDonald and Kate Bulliger on indigenous peoples uh, in the age of revolutions, which I contributed to as well. So there are other scholars trying to do the same thing, uh, which is to take this Atlantic story elsewhere. So that I guess the lineage of our rights and the forms of our protest in the Indian Ocean or in the Pacific Ocean don't need to be framed in relation to the Atlantic alone. Mm. That's that's really interesting. And I think that your work here ambitiously brings together several oceanic spaces that have previously been considered as distinct conceptual entities, the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean. And even within the Indian Ocean, there has traditionally been an imagined separation between the Western Indian Ocean of Zanzibar, Aden, and Gujarat, and the Eastern Indian Ocean of Calcutta, Rangoon, and Singapore. What informs your choice to bring these spaces together and how have you approached them differently? Yeah, so that's about the organization of the book, I guess. Um, yeah, certainly these spaces sometimes don't exist historiographically or exist very barely. The Southwest Indian Ocean, for instance, does have literature on it. Um, or the Tasman Sea now is starting to have a literature on it. But oftentimes, say with the Tasman Sea, the literature is divided between scholars who work on Australia and scholars who work on New Zealand often. So I think it was a conscious decision to juxtapose unexpected things um, against each other. And as I did that, I also knew that in the Indian Ocean Studies and also in Pacific Ocean Studies and Atlantic Studies, it's quite easy to romanticize the long distance connections the whole ocean connections, or to present the Indian Ocean as a system um, of a kind. And so what I was trying to do with this strategy of juxtaposition and granularity, if you will, smaller kind of um, seas, was to focus as much on short distance connections between Australia and New Zealand 
on Tasmania um, for indigenous peoples on the move on colonial vessels, colonial settlers and projects of systematic colonization moving between in that triangle of New South Wales, New Zealand and Tasmania, or with the Bay of Bengal, you know, thinking about Kandy, Ava and Java uh, and the connections between them, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, Burma. Um, so not necessarily doing the whole ocean, but there are, there are places in the book where I do do the whole ocean and do do the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean together. Um, but I think with Indian Ocean studies, we need to not simply fall into the long distance and the global too easily uh, and keep uh, room for these regional accounts, which are not necessarily equivalent to area studies, but which are these new regions like the Bay of Bengal um, or the Southwest Indian Ocean or for the Pacific, the Tasman Sea um, as well, because then you get to quite unexpected stories and stories which historians have actually not told before at times. Another thing that struck me about the book was what you term thinking with waves, where you insist on the irreducible materiality of the ocean, not simply in terms of the formation of crests and the breaking of waves, but as a broader physical setting for the story you're telling, replete with rains, storm, cyclones, earthquakes, water spouts, etc. What does the environment matter in our tellings of oceanic history? Well, I think it's clearly politically really, really significant, uh, incredibly important in terms of the climate emergency that we all face. I was just thinking about this recently because the book ends with me sitting in Mauritius. I did a little afterward about um, doing research in Mauritius um, and uh, contemplating the sea and thinking about how the sea and the coral reef is changing. And of course, just in the last few weeks, there's been this huge oil spill in Mauritius in the very place that... Um, I was at one point uh, observing uh, in the book where one of the battles between the British and the French uh, took place. So I think, you know, it's extraordinary what's going on in terms of climate change and environmental change in our world. And so the environment needs to figure. So that's one thing. Waves. Yeah, so waves just intellectually and theoretically, I have found really interesting to think with because I guess networks have dominated way too much in theorizations of global history and Indian Ocean studies as well. And networks seem like seamless models with which to theorize uh, historical change and globalization. Whereas the wave is uneven, it can break, it can be sequential, it can be violent, um, it can you know just go across a short amount of water, be short distance, it can be long distance, and it's also environmental. So it seems a much better way, for me anyway, um, as someone who um, has grown up by, by the sea too, um, to theorize at the Indian Ocean and global history. And for this period too, it actually, um, so the book begins with some images of people, say there's an image, an image of horses from Australia being landed in Madras tonight uh, at the start of the book. I think it really gives a sense of the period um, as one where mastery of the waves has not been forged as yet. And as you said, yes, earthquakes, water sparks, rain, storms, cyclones. So there's a sort of unpredictability to this story, which I would say arguably is environmental. And then as a result of that, it's also political. Where will the age of revolutions go? Um, which revolution is going to succeed, which future is going to come to be, which empire 
is going to ride the waves. Uh, we don't know as yet, and of course it becomes the British, but um, it's that uncertainty that actually, quite beautifully, I think for me anyway, um, and for my kind of thinking, um, I, I thought could be captured by just contemplating waves. Thank you so much for that. So now let's turn to the individual chapters of the book. And I'm really interested in your first chapter, Travel City Oceanic South. Who is Peter Dillon and what might the biography of his life tell us about these oceanic connections? What were some other writers and travelers who left accounts of voyaging? And how were European wars and Pacific Island contestations interrelated? How did non-European observers and writers account for his conflicts? Yeah, so lots of questions there. I mean, that first chapter is an, an introductory chapter, and it's one that sketches the connections across the Pacific and Indian Oceans before I go into these chapters on the small seas, which I already um, pointed to in my comments earlier. And so, yes, uh, that first chapter has this man called Peter Dillon, who's an erratic maritime adventurer and private trader, um, he says he fought in the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. He lives in Fiji in 1808-9. And he has these very close attachments to Pacific Islanders. He bases himself in Sydney. He later moves to Calcutta. So he really connects up uh, the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. But I should just say it's not primarily because of him that I brought his story into the start of Waves Across the South but rather because on his ships are just an extraordinary range of people, and it's their stories in turn that I wanted to point to by, by starting with Peter Dillon. So on this voyage um, from Latin America across the Pacific to Calcutta, 1825, 1826, uh, the ship is the St. Patrick. There are British soldiers who fought uh, in Latin American wars of independence, there's a Chinese cook, there's a Bengali steward, there are Tahitians, there are Maori men who go with Dylan and who are presented as noble savages, quote-unquote, in Calcutta. And so it becomes a sort of microcosm, really, about of the, this ship and the people on it with Dylan, of the tussles over race and status um, and the conflicting agendas and indigenous agency of the Maori and the Tahitians, uh, which can drive uh, the story of uh, the late 18th, uh, early 19th century Indian Ocean and Pacific Ocean. But just uh, as an aside, there are also Persian travelers' um, accounts, and I use uh, the translated accounts uh, of Persian travelers uh, in this first chapter, because I, I thought I couldn't just leave it to Dylan. The Dylan is this, certainly stands in for this wide eclectic range uh, of perspectives if one, think about, one thinks about uh, the people on the ship. I couldn't leave it with that. I wanted to bring in another perspective, which was Asian here. And so we have these Persian travelers going across the sea um, and arguably also debating race and status and slavery and, and whales and stars and laskers and the liberty of women uh, and so forth. And on ships a bit like um, Peter Dillon's ship, actually. Um, so I thought putting those two together would be a way of just introducing the reach of uh, the book and the different places of the book, but also uh, the range of perspectives. There are other perspectives which don't feature here, uh, which come into the book later, but uh, a way of really um, 
yeah, um, giving our intro to uh, the book and its places and its peoples. Mm. And turning to the South Pacific, which forms the focus of your next chapter, how did indigenous elites in the South Pacific draw on the consolidation of royal monarchical lines to launch an anti-imperial resistance to invasion? And what were some of the different valences attached to these conceptions of the monarchy? Yes, this is the next chapter goes to the South Pacific. And one of the things I'm tracking there is the consolidation of monarchy in this era of the age of revolutions across so many uh, Pacific societies. So of course, Pacific societies didn't have queens and kings like uh, in Europe. There was a hereditary sense of chieftaincy uh, in these societies. And so what I'm interested in here is how that mutates uh, that notion of chieftaincy, that notion of warriorship, how that mutates into monarchy. And it mutates into monarchy, I argue, through creative adoption and even raiding uh, of Europeans. So uh, the language of raiding here applies to what happens in Tonga, um, when a ship, the Port au Prince, is burnt in 1806. A lot of things, the skills, the possessions of people on the ship, even the people on the ship, are then recycled within Tonga, in wars uh, in Tonga. And so if we can think about the Age of Revolutions as a period when we have these debates about political organization, republicanism, monarchy, etc., in Europe, we're having the consolidation of monarchic systems through the adoption of um, European stuff, um, but its relocation within existent cosmologies. Um, I think you said something about valences. So, yeah, certainly this solidification of monarchy has different valences uh, in the Pacific. It's about warfare and violence, which is indigenous, and it's about elites, often men, establishing their power, and that we must highlight. Um, there are women involved in it as well, and I talk about Mapi Hape, uh, a woman who takes William Mariner, who came on that ship I just mentioned, um, as her adoptive son and tries to find her own path uh, through the story and corresponds with Mariner when he returns uh, to England. Um, so there's that level level of intimate politics, uh, if you will. And there is yes, certainly anti-colonial valence um, as well, because the idea of monarchy can serve um, as a context for anti-colonialism. The, the chapter has material on Aotearoa, New Zealand, and the Kingitanga movement, uh, which finds a Maori king. Um, and that's one instance of that. Uh, it opposes, uh, the movement opposes um, the taking of ancestral land by Europeans. Um, so certainly it can be anti-colonial, it can be intimate, uh, it can be male and authoritarian um, in valence as well. That to me definitely sounds very exciting and, and very inspiring in an age of massive indigenous pro protests, you know, from Mauna Kea in Hawaii to to Standing Rock in North Dakota. Uh, in North Dakota. Um, but now turning to the Southwest Indian Ocean, I wonder what was the role of the Cape Colony or present-day Cape Town in the broader 18th and 19th century Indian Ocean world? How did the language and practice of revolt disseminate among 
the Khoikhoi, track boers, other indigenous and enslaved groups, migrants, laborers, and settlers, and what sorts of symbols or ideologies did they draw on? Yeah, so with the South West Indian Ocean, that chapter has this um, segment on the Cape Colony, and I present it as a staging post of a kind, but just a huge variety of revolts and patriotic and insurgent movements. Um, and I was quite struck at how heterogeneous the story was. So as you said, yes, there's the Trek Boer story, which is about a patriotic patriotic tradition of opposition to the policies of the Dutch East India Company, which comes from the frontier of the Cape Colony. It's about people writing petitions, demanding rights for these frontiersmen, supplies from Batavia. This is not something that has been known before coming into um, the, the frontier um, as well, connecting up these patriots, Trek Boers, uh, with the Indian Ocean world. Then we have the Khoisan, indigenous peoples, raiding Trek Boer farms uh, and a triangle opening up between British militancy and occupation, uh, Khoisan peoples and Trek Boers um, as well. And then there's the rebellion of the enslaved. So people from all over the Indian Ocean world being coming to the Cape Colony and, um, for instance, a slave rebellion of 1808. So in terms of symbols and ideologies, yeah, certainly the Atlantic is in view. So in that slave rebellion of um, 1808, uh, the Haitian Revolution is a point of reference. There's no doubt about it. But there's also um, the status of Islam that we need to think about. So it's not just an Atlantic story. And that's really the important point in terms of drawing this uh, age of revolutions into the Indian Ocean. Um, the Brits are very worried about the dissemination of Islam among slaves because they want to convert slaves uh, to Christianity, enslaved peoples uh, to Christianity. So there's this whole kind of range of different types of ideas, um, different kinds of revolt, and very militarized intervention, which is imperial, um, which basically means that this is a locally molded story in the Oceanic South. Very interesting. What kind of radicalizing impact did the revolt in Cape Town have on the French colony of Mauritius? And you speak of this attempted collaboration by Tipu Sultan in Mysore with Mauritian Republicans. What does that tell us about Indian Ocean convergences? And what were the politics of abolitionism that were broadly being articulated during this period? Yeah, so big questions again. Let me try and um, summarize briefly. So I, I wasn't as interested in the link between the Cape and Mauritius. Um, I mean, there is a link because um, an embassy of patriots arrives in Mauritius from the Cape Colony. But I was interested in the oceanic context for republicanism in Mauritius because you get the news of the um, French Revolution arriving in Mauritius on a ship from Bordeaux in 1790, and very, very quickly, you have revolutionary symbols being worn in um, Mauritius. You have advertisements on the streets calling for people to form themselves into citizens and so forth. So Mauritius becomes Republican. And I argue that though it's such a very small place, it becomes a really important place for the Indian Ocean in this age of revolutions. Because like from the Cape, you get various embassies arriving in Mauritius. Um, you also get, say, bases in French India, Pondicherry, Chandanagar, um, trying to imitate 
what goes on in Mauritius. And Mauritius is the headquarters of the French Indian Ocean world. So um, effectively, it's sort of, you know, there is a small place which becomes the beacon of um, revolutionism uh, in the Indian Ocean. And that's where then Tipu Sultan comes into the story as well. And it's a controversial story, and I'm totally aware that it's controversial um, because um, the British propagandize and exaggerate Tipu's um, connections with the French uh, in order to take over uh, his kingdom. What I'm trying to do, however, in that debate is to approach Tipu from Mauritius because he sends an embassy uh, to Mauritius and there are papers connected with this embassy in the Mauritius archives now. Um, and arguably what I'm saying is that instead of calibrating Tipu in relation to Jacobinism kind of universal categories of assessment, which are European or Atlantic, even Republicanism, let's think about the relationship between Tipu and Mauritius. And let's think about you know, the men, fighting men, attempts at trade, an embassy, um, a man who um, arrives at Tipu's court before um, this, this sort of club, alleged club, is set up, who is Mauritian and who's a settler in Mauritius. So effectively, we need to kind of reconsider this, um, and it hasn't really been done, from Mauritius, um, rather than seeing this as a South, only a South Asian story. Um, and so once again, this is sort of indicator really of the potential of an oceanic lens on the age of revolutions. I think you said something about abolition as well, um, Kelvin. Uh, yeah, so abolition is um, something that's being worked out. It actually sort of features in a later chapter, but the point I make is that it's not a moral turning point in the Southwest Indian Ocean because it's such a layered landscape, French, British, um, et cetera, and British governors, the first British governor of Mauritius can actually turn, turn a blind eye uh, on slavery. Mm. So this is actually really closely related to the Persian Gulf's age of revolution, where ideas of state independence, rational religion, piracy, and free trade were negotiated and debated. What is the relationship here that you trace between the intensification of maritime plunder and the emergence of Wahhabi ideology? And how did it come to be described as revolutionary by several contemporary interlocutors? What does the political history of Oman and Egypt tell us about broader transformations in the Ottoman, Mughal, and Safavid empires? Yeah, so the age of revolutions in the Gulf has different different aspects to it, and I should really sort of emphasize that at the start. It includes the story of the Wahhabi movement, which of course, as we know, stresses the unity of Allah and criticizes the sin of polytheism. So it's a religiously reformist and politically purist movement. It's undertaking raids against the Ottomans. Um, it's uh, taking over Mecca and Medina, uh, 1803 um, for instance. So what I try to do in this chapter is to look at this story from the Persian Gulf and to see how it spills over into the Gulf with um, the increasing hold of Wahhabism in Ras al-Khaimah. Um, and so then I argue that the British East India Company responds to this maritime activity, which it categorizes as piracy by sending these counter-revolutionary military expeditions from Bombay to Ras al-Khaimah, 
um, invasions of the Gulf uh, in 1809, 1819-20. Uh, so just to kind of return to the first point I made, which is that you know, the Gulf's age of revolutions has different aspects to it. There's the Wahhabi kind of story, which I just mentioned, but then there's also the story of Oman, which is finding its way in the age of revolution. So, you know, when these expeditions set off from Bombay to what is now the United Arab Emirates, Oman is the ally with the British, and it has a different strand of Islamic practices. It's able to play the diplomatic game uh, in the age of revolutions. It is trying to be the choice gatekeeper for trade, and it eventually sort of mutates and bases itself uh, more and more in East Africa. So it actually is a sort of state which is finding its own way uh, in this period, and that's the way I interpret it. So one has to sort of have that aspect of uh, the story, not simply uh, seeing this in an essentialist way as a kind of Wahhabi sort of story, because that is dangerous for all kinds of reasons. Um, and then I actually take a, take a step back um, and say that there's a kind of Eurasian aspect to this um, as well, because on the one side we have Persia and the Dutch when they're, uh, not the Dutch, the British when they're invading like this are really worried about stepping on the toes uh, of the Persians. And then we have, you know, the Ottomans, Muhammad Ali's um, uh, Egyptian troops being stationed in Arabia um, and Muhammad Ali's uh, campaign um, against the Wahhabis, 1812 to 1818, as well. So, you know, there are all these layers of politics, and it's that um, multi-perspectival, um, I think I call it concentric circles um, in that chapter, um, dimension of it that we need to keep in mind, rather than essentializing it as the Wahhabis are revolutionary, which of course they were, but it's not the whole story. So one thing that was really interesting uh, for me in this chapter was your treatment of the Parsis, because from my understanding, they've been conventionally narrated in the historiography of South Asia as mercenaries, as capitalists, as vernacular industrialists, but not really as political actors. Here, however, you argue that they had a central role to play in this age of revolution. So what forms of political activity were they engaged in during this period? Yeah, so I put the Parsis in the Persian Gulf chapter, by the way, which I think is quite interesting because, um, I mean, of course, they migrate uh, from Persia because of um, their Zoroastrian faith uh, to Gujarat and then from Gujarat later to Bombay. There's many Parsis in Bombay, say, I think around 10,000 in um, 1810 or so. Um, and yeah, you're right. I mean, there seem to be people who benefit from imperialism, you know, conquered all classes who, you know, become wealthy in cotton and opium and money lending and brokerage uh, and so on. But what I tried, what I was surprised by was that actually there were ships, some ships built by Parsis in Bombay going to Oman um, um, as well. And so I kind of wanted to, and the, the shipping link between Bombay and the Gulf, as I've already hinted at, is really, really significant and carries on becoming more significant uh, as we go through this period as Bombay dominates over this arena. So I thought tracking the kind of Parsi's engagement with the Age of Revolutions would be a way of reconsidering once again uh, the Persian Gulf story. So, yeah, they're setting up uh, assemblies, certainly, and we knew about this already from the work uh, of others, uh, and they're debating rights in addition to working 
um, from Amman uh, like this. Um, and beneath this shipping kind of story between the Gulf and Bombay, I should say that it's not just these elite Parsis, they're also all the laborers and the uh, sailors, so-called Lascos, the slaves, who are going back and forth on this line of shipping. Um, and there are revolts, there are mutinies and so forth. So that is also part of the Age of Revolutions story, which arguably links um, the Gulf um, to India. Thank you for that. I So let's turn now to the chapter on Detachment C, which I think is so interesting for um, a multitude of reasons. If the national historiography of Australia has been narrated primarily from a white settler perspective, and that of the Indian Ocean from the perspective of mobile seafaring elites, what are the possibilities for recuperating an indigenous history of revolution? And what sorts of archives, materials, and reading practices are available to us as historians today to tap into or recover this Aboriginal Australian life world? Yeah, so it's really difficult. It's really difficult. Um, and especially because I'm trained as a historian, not as an archaeologist, or I haven't done a huge amount of oral history. So there are other techniques that could have been used, and I'm quite conscious of that in writing Aboriginal Australian life worlds uh, into this book. What I do in Waves Across the South is that I start with biography. Um, so an Aboriginal woman called Cora and her husband called Bungaree. And I also reflect more broadly on Indigenous women um, as they engage with the water, especially on the north coast of Tasmania in the midst of um, really violent seal trade. Um, you know, we have escaped convicts and stowaways um, relying on these indigenous women to learn how to hunt seals. So what's the link to the Age of Revolutions, I guess? Um, it's about the agency, it's about the presence, it's about the endurance of these indigenous peoples, Aboriginal Australians uh, in New South Wales and Tasmania in the midst of the horrific colonisation and genocide uh, in Tasmania. Um, and that endurance and reliance, uh, and endurance and persistence is a presence is evident um, if one thinks about their role as go-betweens um, in so many ways. Um, I think you were also asking about methodology. I guess, I mean, if one thinks about Bangaree, who is the man who I just mentioned, um, who was married to Cora, he is the most portrayed Aboriginal person in this period, if I remember rightly. And there's a portrait in the book by Augustus Earle in the 1820s, 1826, I think. Um, and you see him you know, wearing this military outfit and it's secondhand clothing given by departing colonial office, uh, officials. Now, the reason why that is interesting is because it links it to the Age of Revolution. So around his neck, you have a breastplate where he's said to be a king. In the press, sometimes I say Aboriginal Australians are seen as Republicans. The language of chieftaincy is utilised to parody them as well. So there's a huge amount of colonial racialization and racism um, and mockery um, going on here. And the reason why that, that links to the Age of Revolutions argument is because it's an emptying out of the language of the Age of Revolutions. Uh, Republican, chief, monarch, 
These are just humorous racist jokes being applied to Aboriginal peoples. And so it's counter-revolutionary um, for that purpose. And it's evident in the visual propaganda and record uh, of this era. So that's just one example, really, of the kind of deconstruction that's necessary of visual and textual records. Certainly that can be done with archaeology and so forth and so forth as well um, to get to Indigenous presence um, and Indigenous um, and colonial responses um, to the Indigenous um, as also the global resonances um, of Aboriginal histories. And of course here, I think what is really operative is how you describe the colonial implementation of educational and bureaucratic orders as a counter-revolution of race and gender. What accounts for the centrality of race and gender in the colonial project? And of course, this has been, um, there's a vast range of scholarship on this, but in what ways were they central to this settler colonial project in, in Australia specifically? And how do they continue to persist today? That's a huge question. Um, I think, I mean, just a simple answer is that classification is central to colonialism um, and the management of an evacuation of indigenous peoples is about classification and so it's about race and gender um, at its sort of core um, and that gender and race orders are becoming way more rigid uh, under the, the British um, in this period. Um, in terms of its legacy today, well, I think, you know, historiographically, where are the Aboriginal Australian peoples? It's very easy to lose them in oceanic studies. Um, it's very easy to lose them in global history. And so that's partly why I was just really keen to make space for them um, in the book. Um, and, you know, the legacies of educational systems and bureaucratic orders, uh, which you mentioned, are, well, you know, where are Aboriginal Australians in terms of universities? Um, if you go to do research um, at the Mitchell Library, which I did um, for this chapter, there's, there's a statue of Flinders, the man who circumnavigates Australia. But there's nothing about Bangaree, who is the man I just mentioned, who was his aide. Um, and so we carry on commemorating um, the white explorer. So I think, you know, that the legacies of that race and gender order are certainly educational, they're certainly university linked, they're certainly commemorative. Um, and they're still with us, we're still working them out. Hmm. So, turning to your next chapter on India's maritime frontier, how should we rethink the political and military history of certain spaces that we conventionally think of as landlocked? So, for example, Kandy would be an example, or uh, Ava. How does an oceanic perspective cast new light on the Anglo-Burmese wars, the Kandyan wars, and as you allude to in this chapter, even the opium wars that were much more further afield. And how did the terms of warfare change during this period of immense turbulence? Yeah, so this is, a, a, this chapter, I mean, as I said earlier, the chapters are engaging with different themes in the counter-revolution of the British Empire in this, this section of the book. And um, the one I just talked about on the Tasman Seas about race and gender, and this is about this one on the Bay of Bengal, which we're talking about now, is on warfare. And so what I'm trying to do is to say that there is a maritime frontier to the British Indian war machine. And that maritime frontier, you can track it from the invasion of Java in 1811 to the invasion of Kandy in Sri Lanka in 1815 
and on to the Anglo-Burmese Wars uh, of the 1820s. And you can look back at it, yes, as you say, from later and further afield uh, with the Opium Wars, by which time the British are more triumphant um, technologically and in maritime terms. But in this earlier kind of phase, which is Napoleonic and post-Napoleonic, 1811, 1815, 1820, um, it's much more uncertain. Um, and so what you get is a huge amount of looting, which I wanted to emphasize, um, which I link to the uncertainty of the outcomes of war and its totality, total war uh, as a process. Um, and um, you also get technology going wrong, maritime technology not working. So for instance, with the Anglo-Burmese war, um, I see it as, yes, certainly it's a land-based war, um, but it's also kind of maritime one because you get European uh, British ships set against Burmese warboats on the Irrawaddy, so it has a naval aspect to it, and that is partly cosmological in terms of how uh, Buddhist kings think uh, about the Irrawaddy. Um, but it's also about the British trying to be, you know, we are a maritime power. But, of course, when a steamship is used uh, for the first time in war ever by the British, it gets stuck in the Irrawaddy, uh, in the sand. So, literally, this is, you know, looting, maritime standoff characterizes uh, these wars um, and links it to the counter-revolutionary British Empire. Um, and you could think of it in translocal terms, right? So you can think about pre-war connections between these sites, monks going back and forth, ideas of Buddhist reform. Uh, you can think about um, fighters, um, for instance, moving um, as well. So there are a whole series of prior connections onto which this war machine um, uh, is layered. Um, and then Orientalists like John Crawford, who writes about the Indian archipelago, actually link these sites together uh, in their writing as well. So I was suggesting that actually this could be a productive way uh, of thinking about uh, British war uh, across the water in this era, if we think with the, the Bay of Bengal. Your point on technology and the Imperial project was, was certainly very well taken because I'm now thinking of your um, account of the Madras Observatory um, that you that you relate to a broader global history of science. What was the relationship between these scientific enterprises like weather watching, meteorology, hydrography, and imperial modeling? Uh, what was their relationship with the consolidation of the British imperial project? And what sort of epistemological consequences did they did these forms of scientific knowledge uh, generate? How have they impact how have they impacted perceptions of subjectivity? Yeah, so as I said, um, war was a theme for the previous one, race and gender, and with this chapter now on working out of the Madras Observatory, I was interested in knowledge and science. And so the Madras Observatory is established um, formally under the East, it's privately established first in the 1780s, uh, and then formally under the East India Company in 1792. And Technically, its kind of main kind of function is to determine longitude, which basically means it corrects timepieces, ship chronometers on board East India Company vessels so that those vessels can then navigate across the Indian Ocean, for instance, in the monsoon. But if you look at it, it's actually doing a huge amount of data crunching. 
stars, atmosphere, uh, tides, temperature, surveying, even things, I mean, people involved with it are, you know, in interested in all kinds of other orientalist activities um, as well. So all of this data crunching um, was really striking to me. And the way I kind of explain it is that there's sort of spillage, there's sort of a sort of spillage over disciplines. It's kind of extending itself in terms of its investigations across all of these disciplines. But it's also extending itself, and for this reason, over territories and over water um, as well. So from Madras Observatory, you, you have uh, an expedition going off to Southeast Asia, which is um, the subject uh, of this chapter, um, to determine the exact shape of, or to confirm the exact shape of the Earth. Um, you also have, uh, out of this story, uh, Madras-based people campaigning for uh, colonization in Southeast Asia, for instance. So this spillage is you know, disciplinary, it's geographical, and then it's increasingly imperial um, as well, because um, as you get the British taking over Singapore, there are the surveying, you know, right at the same time, exactly side by side. And so it's not as if one follows the other. The two things are, you know, at the same time simultaneous um, as well. So as all of this data crunching and spillage and extension um, across disciplines and places occurs, you get modeling. Um, and so you get the modeling of space and time and the classification of the Indian Ocean, the Bay of Bengal, the monsoon, um, and so on. And the way I kind of see this, it's about detachment um, from locality. Um, you're able to survey from up high and you're able to see the globe um, as a sphere more and more uh, through this story. And as you do that, you know, that becomes troubling and disturbing um, for subjects, including colonists, but also indigenous intellectuals um, as they reflect on the sea and reflect um, on how their situation uh, is changing with the arrival of steamships, for instance, uh, in Singapore. Thank you so much for that. And in conclusion, what remains of this diverse life world today? How is our world today born of the constellation of globalization and imperialism? And how have we inherited these epistemological frameworks born of such oceanic encounters? Yeah, a lot of this world still exists, I should say first, because persistence and endurance of indigenous peoples are a theme of this book. The indigenous oceanic is still with us. Uh, I was, um, I mean, just on this, since I talked about Bungary earlier, when I was doing research in the Mitchell Library and looking at Bungary's portrait, um, as well as some of the objects um, of Cora, who was married, uh, who, who was his wife, I, I, you know, came out and got onto a bus and, you know, I was a bit dazed because I got out of the archive and I just looked up and there was Bungary's portrait in the window of a bank telling me um, with an exhibition on currency and so forth. So I kind of thought, well, actually the street, the names of the streets, uh, the visual kind of uh, circulation of these images um, and, um, and so on. You know, indigenous history, the kind of the, the, the shadows of this story uh, are still with us uh, in various cities uh, in the global south. However, the epistemological frameworks that we still use are often land-based they're continent-based, they're nation-based, they're area-based. And so I guess the ocean just, you know, disrupts that and churns all of it 
um, uh, and that's why oceanic studies um, are useful. But critically, dominance over the ocean is growing, and um, with climate but with the climate emergency, what that means is that though indigenous peoples have persisted and endured, um, they're in danger like never before from um, the climate emergency. They're at the front line um, of the climate climate emergency. So that politically also necessitates a reconsideration um, of the frameworks that we utilize um, as historians. And yes, certainly, um, you know, we need revolution once again. We need solidarity. We need protest um, against racism and culturalism and political chauvinism um, across these oceanic locales. And that's another reason why I put the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean together. I think a lot can be gained by placing these histories side by side uh, in thinking about forms of solidarity which are necessary from the global south uh, at this precise moment. Certainly. So just to wrap things up, do we still live in an age of revolution? As we face an urgent climate crisis, as you have mentioned, and the embers of revolution across Minnesota, Hong Kong, Beirut, Santiago, Delhi, what remains of the possibility for revolution today? Yeah, so I think I sort of um, hinted at that already, which is basically that, yes, we need revolution uh, and we need protest and solidarity. And I think we need to look across the global south. And I'm not suggesting that the only way to do that is across the Pacific and Indian Ocean, but hopefully waves across the south just helps us sort of put together these histories a little bit um, and helps a little bit uh, with that uh, in a new way. Um, and um, when I was in Tonga looking at um, the, the contact with, with China, I mean, there, there are different ways in all, all Chinese involvement in Sri Lanka and port building is another example of this. I think there are kind of other dangers in terms of the environment um, and in terms of capitalism and corporate, corporatization at the minute with Trump um, as well. And so I think with the climate emergency and a new series of political engagements with the Pacific and Indian Ocean, um, certainly revolution uh, is still necessary. And considering the history of revolution uh, in these two oceans, can be inspiring um, for that reason. Uh, it certainly has been for me in thinking about um, how Indigenous peoples responded. So before we move on to our last traditional question, can you please read a paragraph from, from the book? Yeah, so you warned me that this is going to happen, and I wasn't quite sure which chapter, which, par which, chapter, which paragraph um, to read, but I decided to read from um, the chapter on war across the Bay of Bengal, and this is about Burma, Myanmar, and it's about a correspondence, um, so it's about a monk who writes letters for others uh, in Burma, Myanmar, and it's about, it has the indicators really of the changes, the maritime changes which are happening because of the increasing intrusion of Europeans at the shores of Burma, Myanmar. So this is written in the north, but it's looking towards the south and the seaboard. The elderly novice wrote for a young man called Lotus Leaf, who had traveled down the Irrawaddy to Rangoon. I should have written before I sailed, but in such trifling matters, the only important thing 
is love and affection. For Lotus Leaf, Rangoon was a city to which people came from across the Bay of Bengal, quote, all sorts of sailors, strangers and aliens, in habit and custom, and belonging to many races, all of which I cannot name. Among the people listed were Armenians, Roman Catholics, Portuguese, Africans, Arabs, all kinds of Indians, including Hindu sadhus, Muslim crewmen, and Bombay merchants. Quote, they are hairy people with moustaches, side whiskers, beards, and shaggy legs. Energetic and alert, they hustle and bustle from place to place, round and round and up and down, in and out and to and fro, winding and curving, to all nooks and corners, east and north and west and south. Particularly interesting is how this giddiness was contrasted with the steadiness of the people up the Irrawaddy in the north. Quote, I hope that my dear people at home remain constant and true to me, like that silver lizard, undisturbed by the scandalous and untrue accounts of what I did and what I do. The silver lizard referred to the mariner's compass, which, in the words of the letter, remains quietly constant, always pointing to the north. Beautiful. So, Sujit, we've taken up a lot of your time. What are you working on now? Can you tell us about your current and future projects? Well, at one level, actually, I'm just trying to learn how to teach online, given that we're in the middle of a pandemic, and that's taking up a lot of time. Uh, but no, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. I am working on a few papers. I'm working on a paper on Asian sailors in the Indian Ocean world and masculinity. Um, I'm trying to work out this idea of the wave, which we've spoken about, because various people have been enthusiastic about it. Um, and that's a more theoretical paper on the wave uh, as a way of reconsidering global history and Indian Ocean history. And I also have a paper which is forthcoming on animals and humans, and pangolins in particular, uh, in relation to COVID-19. So those are just small papers, um, but, or well, they're papers, um, but I'm hoping to take a break for a bit and just to think about what the next book uh, will be about and not to commit straight away, but to give myself some headspace. Um, and hopefully by then, uh, the pandemic may have passed as well and travel may be possible uh, to archives. That's certainly very exciting and I'll be looking out for your papers and hopefully your next book uh, very soon. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored Waves Across the South by Professor Sujit Shiva Sundaram, published by William Collins in 2020. You can find the book on Amazon and other outlets. This is your host, Kelvin Eng. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.